This is an EWTN Newslink. I'm Teresa Tamio from Catholic Connection. As pro-life journalist David Delighton stands at trial in San Francisco in a federal civil suit by Planned Parenthood. Horrific details about abortion emerged during the testimony. Efforts by the presiding federal judge to quash the details of the content of his undercover videos are proving to be largely ineffective. Investigators in the House impeachment inquiry expect to hear from two more government witnesses behind closed doors. Today's testimony is set from two Ukraine experts at the State Department. As U.S. troops withdraw from parts of Syria, the Pentagon is pivoting from the killing of Islamic State group leaders to increasing U.S. efforts to protect Syria's eastern oil fields. Defense Secretary Mark Esper saying the goal of the mission is to deny income to what's left of ISIS. For more news with the Catholic Perspective, visit EWTNNews.com. I'm Teresa Tamio and Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Indeedly, uh, if I can coin a word there, <laughs> it is a program on a Catholic radio network for non-Catholics. What is that all about? It basically means that if you are a non-Catholic, maybe you were a Catholic uh, many years ago, a practicing Catholic, fell away from the faith for whatever reason, uh, maybe you've never been a Catholic and this is uh, this is something all new to you, uh, and you just want some questions answered. That's why we're here to get those questions answered. Here's our number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. As always, you can text the letters EWTN to 55000. You will get a uh, brief robo-response from us. Once you do that, then uh, just text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Charles Beery is our producer. Ryan Penny is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. He can pass on any questions you may want to pose via YouTube or Facebook. Just go to the comments section there. Post your question. Jeff will get that to us here in Studio One. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you? Fantastic. How are you, my friend? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Glad to hear that, as always. And uh, we're going to go to an email here. Very interesting. This is from Billy Jean, who actually didn't uh, email us. She YouTubed us. Billy Jean says, why do you use the rosary in the Catholic faith? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. Because it's useful. Okay. That's the reason, right? The rosary is not a... It's not something that Christ instituted, and it's not obligatory in the Catholic life. Uh, the, the history of the rosary is as follows. The church has always prayed the psalms. The psalms are divinely inspired uh, prayers, a hymn book of the church. We receive from the, the Hebrew and Jewish patrimony, mm-hmm. right? And and the church has always made that the central prayer of the church's life. Right? We recite the psalms in the mass, and then every day, in fact, there's a series of psalms that are prayed. It's called the Liturgy of the Hours. And 
uh, in the Middle Ages, that really became the chief work of the Benedictine monks, who were such an important part of passing the tradition down uh, in in Latin Europe. And they took it so seriously, they would pray all 150 psalms every week. Well, they were evangelizing a culture that was often illiterate, uncultured, and and uh, the model of Benedictine spirituality was not one that was easy for lay people to follow. But there was a desire to, to kind of, let's model our piety on what these monks are doing, because they've done us so much good, we appreciate them so much. And maybe we can't read 150 psalms a week, but we can pray 150 uh, Hail Marys. And devotion to the Blessed Mar- Blessed Virgin Mary is also something that's been part of the Catholic tradition. And so the practice of regularly repeating the angelic salutation from the Gospel of Luke and saying the prayer that our Lord taught us, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, and, uh, and other prayers of, of praise and adoration to God, took on a more and more systematic character and was joined in the late Middle Ages with meditations on the life of Jesus and Mary and the saints. And as that began to take shape, it evolved uh, organically over time into the devotion that we now know as the Rosary. And the Rosary is a, it's multiple aspects to it. So there are petitions to God and and through the Blessed Virgin Mary for 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 benefits and graces. But there is also this aspect of being drawn into a kind of meditative union with with Christ and the Blessed Mother through reflections on on their lives. And that's that's a form of mental prayer, which is uh, a practice that every Catholic is supposed to have. All Catholics are supposed to practice mental prayer, which is essentially to think over on a daily basis the content of the faith, some mystery of the faith some doctrinal truth, some image from the life of Christ, and to try to apply that in my interior life and make it mine and imitate the graces and virtues that I see therein. So it's an accessible way of making that practice available to Catholics on a daily basis. And so many people have found it helpful that uh, that it's commended to us by the Church and her teachers, especially many of the popes have written encyclicals in praise of the Rosary as a devotion. But Again, it's it's something that uh, it's not mandatory. Catholics don't have to pray the Rosary, and if there's another devotion in Catholic tradition that speaks to you, uh, you can certainly do that. You know, I, sure. I I like to pray the Rosary. I also like to pray the Divine Office that I mentioned. So mm-hmm. pray the Psalms every day and uh, and offer various other prayers. Uh, Eucharistic adoration, according to Pope John Paul II, his opinion was that Eucharistic adoration was the greatest of the devotions in the Catholic faith. We're talking about prayers that take place outside the liturgy. Mm-hmm. He says Eucharistic adoration is the tops. So, you know, you could combine them all. You could pray the office and the rosary and Eucharistic adoration all at one go. Then you'd really have something. Absolutely. Billy Jean, thank you so much for uh, watching us on YouTube. Here's an email from Courtney. At the end of your show recently, you stated that there is no proof at all that Judas received Holy Communion before betraying Jesus on Holy Thursday. I find this idea extremely disturbing and completely contrary to everything I've ever been taught as a Catholic convert. Could you please defend your position on this point? Yeah, the scripture doesn't unambiguously say that Jesus that Judas received Holy Communion. It's just and, not said. And so again, you read the commentaries on the on the upper room in the on the gospels from Catholic tradition and you'll find that Catholic interpreters are of two minds on this. 
So there it is. So, I mean, if you if you want to show me in the tradition where it's unambiguously taught that Judas received communion, have at it. But until but then, it, but it's just not it's not unambiguously taught. We we don't have to conclude that he did, and there are many Catholics who think he didn't. Very good. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for that. And if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com. Of course, you can send that any time of the day or night, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones and talk with Diane in West Palm Beach, Florida. We've got several lines open right now, so if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, here is your chance to get in and get on. 833-288-EWTN is our phone number, 833-288-3986. It is the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Friends of the Bridegroom, Mark Cardinal Ouellette, Prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, offers a deeper understanding of the Church's teachings on priestly vocation, celibacy, evangelization, and more. Friends of the Bridegroom, for a renewed vision of priestly celibacy by Mark Cardinal Ouellette. The latest release from EWTN Publishing, now available at EWTNRC.com or call 1-800-854-6316. Father Benedict Rochelle. Brothers and sisters, we got to tell the truth in this country. For heaven's sakes, I wouldn't want to go to a synagogue and find that they were having a Muslim service. I wouldn't want to go to a mosque and run into a Baptist service. I don't want to go to a Baptist church and find out that they're having mass. We've got to be honest to ourselves. We've got to be what we are. I'd rather a good old-fashioned, honest agnostic than a phony Christian any day of the week. There are reluctant agnostics. There are atheists who are searching for God, and they may find Him. But somebody who says they're doing something in the name of God, in the name of Christ, and God and Christ have nothing to do with it, is violating this commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall not take my name in vain. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Hey, tomorrow morning on Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, Steve Ray is along to discuss what the church teaches about Halloween, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. Should be a very timely program. Check it out tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio here on EWTN Radio. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Diane in West Palm Beach, Florida, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Diane, what's on your mind today? Um, Hello. I uh, have a friend who's an evangelical. I'm very, very bright. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd like to know how to respond without offending him, if I should respond at all. But what we we do is we, we meet every once in a while. Um, and then um, he told me he is reading this book by Richard Foster, and I I went, got it at the library. It's published in 1978. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I've read it. Okay. Uh, so you know how it tramples all over the Catholic faith without coming right out and naming it, and he actually uses 
um, uh, many of the great saints, Alphonsus Liguori and St. Uh, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and Francis de Sales, to make his points, but he never mentions that they are priests or daily communicants or, you know, anything of that nature. So he, he makes these points for the evangelical Christian, uh, which are uh, so many, um, you know, well, you know. So I'd like to know what I do to respond to that. I don't want to just leave. I don't. I don't want to lose him as a friend and um, how to respond to him. And yeah, sure. Well, there's absolutely no reason to to lose a friend over reading Richard Foster. Not not by a long shot. I mean, I, I don't want to lose a friend over really any any book. No. For any reason. Um. And look, I. Uh, Foster was uh, is a Quaker. That's his ecclesiastical background, um, and uh, so he's not he's not Catholic. The disciplines that he advocates are traditional disciplines of the spiritual life, like prayer and fasting and obedience and corporate worship and confession and things of these sort. And and to the extent that anyone takes up a a, a more rigorous rule of life in the pursuit of holiness. Then I want to encourage them in that. And when when Foster published his book, it uh, it was kind of like a bombshell going off in the world of evangelical Protestantism. That uh, now, if you go back into the Puritan tradition, uh, late 16th, 17th century in uh, in England and New England, you'll you'll find a real celebration of discipline. I mean, the Puritans had some pretty serious spiritual discipline in their lives, and some ascetical practices, um, but it's pretty evident that there's a falling away from that in evangelical life, especially in North America uh, in the 20th century, into a kind of easy believism, a kind of antinomian spirituality that just says, you know, I, I uh, because I'm saved by faith alone, which is the Protestant position, there's nothing, there's nothing for me to do in the Christian life other than proselytize. And that's kind of how I was raised, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. That, that, I mean, there was a kind of a, a, an awareness an inchoate and poorly articulated awareness that my life ought to be ought to be morally different, but I never did grasp the reason why that was the case because I was always taught that the quality of my moral life and self-discipline had no bearing on eternity, so it was kind of hard to dredge up a motivation for living in holiness, right? Other than just self-disgust, and ultimately I think that's what does people in, right? I mean, I I was pretty consistent with my antinomian faith alone spirituality all throughout the 70s and 80s until I woke up one day as a, you know, young adult and realized I kind of hated who I'd become, and I needed to reach for more depth in life. And mm-hmm. so when I found Richard Foster's book, not as a Catholic but as a Protestant, uh, it uh, it spoke to me a little bit because it suggested, you know, there's a there's a path to a deeper, more authentic way of being human that takes seriously the obligation of spiritual development, moral purification, discipline, and rule of life. And it's and for that reason, it's been helpful to many people. Um, but I wouldn't expect Foster to to treat those topics as a Catholic. And, and there are many things that he's going to get wrong and head off on the wrong path. See, within the Catholic life, the purification of, of soul and body... Mm-hmm. is not an end in itself. And it's not just so I can live a more authentic human life. It's actually to prepare me, to open me up for a deeper work of God's Spirit in my life, moving towards mystical union and, and contemplative prayer. And that's, uh, that's, that's really not the orientation of a lot of Protestant spiritual practice, right? And so where I would want to go is say, hey, this is a beginning. This is a place to start a conversation. But where do these disciplines come from? I mean, they come to us from the Catholic tradition. 
So let's go look at them in context. Let's go look at them in the context of the theology that birthed them okay. and the monastics that birthed them, you know. Um, and uh, and that's where I would go with this. And, you know, the reading here is, is nigh on to infinite. I mean, the the uh, the doctors of the church that treat the spiritual life, you mentioned Alphonsus Liguri, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. Um, uh, John of the Cross and Teresa, a little bit hard to swallow for especially for a Protestant. So there are some summations of their work that are more accessible, like the like the summaries composed by Father Thomas Dubay. That's a helpful way into that spirituality. Many of the writings of the Church Fathers, more ascetical writings of the Church Fathers, the uh, the Institutes uh, and the Conferences of St. John Cashin, which are um, his sort of resume of, of uh, the spirituality of the Desert Fathers, any compilation of sayings from the Desert Fathers, is another good, good way into the subject. The, the Orthodox collection known as the Philokalia uh, is sometimes less scary for Protestants to look at because it doesn't have the word Catholic, you know, <laughs> labeled across the top. Yeah. And uh, and they have a, you know, their uh, Orthodoxy has kind of become the new Anglicanism for a lot of Catholics. You know, it was a time when people wanted a kind of deeper, more liturgical spirituality. They would, they want to go with the Catholics. Oh, that's too scary. So they would go off and become Anglicans. But not, many more of them now are attracted to the East. And look, I regard this as, it's not, you're not all the way home. But it's a move in the right direction. So sure. I see this as a beginning of a conversation. Okay. Not, Diane, the, not the end of one. Yeah, right, right, right. Diane, thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Julio is watching us uh, in Brazil on YouTube. Hey there, Julio. Julio says, why do Protestants think the Ark of the Covenant is lost and is going to be found in the end times? Yeah, well, uh, it's lost because it's lost. And okay. I understand that there are some Ethiopians that lay claim to having it, but you know I'll believe it when I see it. Basically, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have it. Uh, there's in uh, uh, in the Book of Revelation, chapter 11 and 12, uh, uh, John the visionary sees the Ark of God, right? And so I suppose that that would be uh, that could get coordinated into some of the dispensational end time. Prophecies of the of you know those that, those types of Protestants, um, but that's not the way the Church understands it, right? Because the Holy Scripture and two thousand years of tradition tell us that old covenant worship is done, it's over, poof, gone, uh, temple veil torn in two, we're never going back, right? We have the one sufficient sacrifice in Christ uh, made manifest to us, the power of that sacrifice present to us, and the holy suffi- sacrifice of the Mass, and it's as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup that we proclaim the Lord's death until he come again. And we're not looking forward to a restoration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and animal sacrifices. I mean, that's a that's a kind of a blasphemy, right? It suggests mm-hmm. that there's something essentially lacking uh, in the death of Christ and the institution of the sacraments, which he gave us to perjure until he comes again. I thought the ark was in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. Or was that now a movie? You, you, melt, you melt your face off when that's you right. look at it, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, glad that you're watching us in uh, Brazil. Julio, thank you so much for checking in via YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Jonathan now in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Jonathan. What's on your mind today? Uh, hi. My uh, What's on my mind is um, Joe Biden. I guess I heard that he was denied communion. 
And I'm just wondering, like, I'm kind of wondering the reasons behind that and if there, were, if there was some sort of a bias. I mean, I, I do know that there's a lot of Catholics that don't support the progressive point of view. And I, I'm just thinking that there might be some sort of a bias there. You know, like, uh, for instance, like, say, my, my governor here in this state uh, supports the death penalty and has donated $300,000 towards it. That money could have went to the church. Now, I'm assuming that Joe Biden has done something similar uh, with abortion or something like that. But, okay. But, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, my understanding of the uh, in the mind of the priest who made this decision to mm-hmm. deny Holy Communion to the former vice president was for the sin of scandal. Right. I mean, you're not you're not denied communion in the church because you hold even an erroneous opinion. So somebody that has a political opinion that may be not only you know, wrong but harmful. Now you're not going to be you're not going to be denied communion on that basis. Nor are you going to be denied communion because of the priest's knowledge of your private sins, and that stays in the confessional and never comes out. Right? The priest is bound to secrecy on that, and even if he has knowledge of some horrible thing you've done, he can never perform a public act that would that would tip you know his hand, so to speak, that would show his cards that he knew what you were doing. Right? That never leaves the confessional. So when when the church publicly refuses communion to someone, it's because they have taken up they they're they're unrepentant in a very public way that leads the people of God astray and causes scandal. And and so advocating the death of the innocent child is a is a very very problematic stance to take. Very problematic in a way that's fundamentally different from public support for the death penalty. Because Catholic teaching on the death penalty is clear. The death penalty is not always intrinsically immoral. It's not always intrinsically immoral. And so you can have a prudential debate about whether or not it's a good idea for the state to execute people. And many Catholics, including the last several popes, have taken the position that it's not a prudent idea for the state to exercise its right to uh, perform the death penalty. And and so that's that's a very, very, very common point of view among many, many Catholics. But the Church also teaches that the death penalty is not always intrinsically immoral. And so the policy implications of that are open to debate, right? And to hold that maybe it's one ought to com- to perform the death penalty in certain circumstances does not put one at odds with the fundamental teaching of the Church. But to hold that we ought to facilitate the death of innocent children in the womb, there's zero ambiguity that that's not just a bad prudential option. It's not just a bad policy position. It's it's intrinsically immoral and in a very scandalous way because it brings about the death of millions. So that's why. All right. Jonathan, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Looks like uh, we have sold out phones. What well, One line available right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Joe is listening in Boston on the Station of the Cross, a first-time caller. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you guys doing? Um, so pretty much I'm, I'm a 20-year-old Catholic in full communion with the church, and uh, I'm practicing, and uh, I've just been I've been I've been growing kind of like this fear of eternity, uh, kind of thinking what could be like so good to la- like what what could be so perfect to last for eternity, and then um, like how, like in, like I'm worried about being bored or like that type of thing. I don't mean to sound like 
like that. Of like, that's just kind of my question. Of like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I can answer that. So uh, you in your life today experience good things that engage your intellect, your imagination, and your will in in ways that make it impossible for you to be bored, right? Now, I don't know what those are for you. I mean, maybe you're a baseball fan, maybe you're a movie fan, maybe you like a good book, but when you're wrapped up in that, you're not thinking about boredom. You're thinking about how enraptured you are, how you're in the flow, right, yeah. of the moment. You're totally mm-hmm. taken up with the object of your enjoyment and your contemplation. Okay, so what the thing that you're enjoying, whether it's a good book or a movie or a baseball game or whatever, right, is good, it's a finite good, but it's only good because it participates in the infinite good that is God himself. And and it's not even comparable. The analogy is not even comparable to a drop of water compared to the ocean. That, that, that's a measly difference compared to the finite good of your book or movie and a literally infinite ocean of God who is goodness itself, beauty itself, truth itself. Now, when you go to heaven, you're not looking on God with the eyes of flesh like you would a movie screen or a statue or a baseball game. The nature of your experience of God in heaven is an immediate, that is, not through a medium, an immediate, intuitive God's essence in your very uh, uh, being. Right? You have an immediate, intuitive knowledge of God's essence. That 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 is infinite, right? And it infinitely transcends any experience of temporal good that you have ever had, and it will satisfy, does satisfy, every capacity you have for longing. Moreover, your capacity for the enjoyment for God will also be multiplied beyond what you could ever think or hope and imagine. You are not going to be limited to your present capacity for enjoyment but will have that magnificently and miraculously magnified by the almighty power of God in accord with the measure of charity that is in your soul at the moment of death. So the Blessed Virgin Mary will enjoy God more than you do in heaven because she has greater charity, Mm -hmm. but in comparison to your present enjoyment of the movie or the baseball game, the difference will be practically infinite. And nothing could possibly deflect your attention from an infinite good. Again, not just with the eyes of flesh or or ears of hearing, but an intuitive knowledge in your soul of God's very essence. Nothing like that in your experience today. Joe, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we'll talk with Lucy in Omaha, Larry in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and uh, lots more on this edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Hope that you can stay with us. Alan Ames will be back in San Antonio from October 26th through November 3rd. Alan has traveled the world for the past 21 years, sharing his inspiring conversion story and powerful healing ministry. Alan's conversion experience has caused a dramatic change in his life, from a violent alcoholic to a man of the sacraments and prayer. For additional information on Alan's ministry or which parishes he will be visiting, go to alanames.org. That's alanames.org. 
Are you or someone you know getting married soon? KJMA listeners and parishioners of St. Matthew Catholic Church, Frank Rivera and Real Mission Media would like to congratulate all those who are engaged and excited for your sacramental wedding day. Did you know that 35% of couples admit if they could, they would go back and hire someone to film their wedding day? For more information about Real Mission Media, go to their website, realmissionmedia.com or call them at 210-344-2436. It started like it does for many people, question my faith and question authority. And I feel that the reason why I left was the the draw of the world. The world was pulling me away. Some people would say, you know, Satan would, you know, Satan was working on me. He did not want me in church. He wanted me to be desperate. He wanted me to have the thoughts of suicide. I started to realize that a lot of the things that I had experienced in my life were a result of my rebellion against God and against authority. Coming back to the church is the first step in healing from all of the hurts of the world. I went from being desperate and in despair to finding hope and encouragement for for the future. I'm on God's team. I, I know who I belong to. And I know where I'm going. And there's nothing that can separate me from God's love. Take another look at the Catholic Church. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Phones are on fire for this edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. When a line does become available, you're invited to grab it at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Larry listening in Kenosha, Wisconsin on WSFI 88.5 FM. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? I have to disagree with the the doctor there when he says all Catholics are Christians. They may be Christians in name only, uh, but I think that you have to welcome a stranger, feed the sick, uh, not be tight with your money, uh, do the thing, be a Christ follower. But the second thing I'd like to touch on. Can I, I can like I address the first question first before we go to the second one? That'd be well, all right. Get my second one in. Well, why don't we go ahead and get the first let question? Me, taken let me care just of. speak to the first one. So this is a question about the meaning of a word, all right? And Saint Paul tells us in Acts chapter, excuse me, in Galatians chapter three, that all who have been baptized have clothed themselves with Christ. And he makes this remark to people who he says are in danger of going to hell. Because the Galatians have departed from the truth of the gospel, are adhering merely to the bare letter of Mosaic law, which is not what makes a Christian, um, but are tempted to uh, deeper forms of immorality. He warns against them in Galatians chapter 5. and says, if you live like this in fornication, adultery, and factions, and hatred, and jealousy, and so forth, if you do that, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he also says that these same people who had received the Spirit of God right through faith in the sacraments, that they are at risk of making uh, uh, the death of the Son of God of no value to them, right? So they're they're really in grave danger, right, mm-hmm. of going to hell. Mm-hmm. But he calls them Christians. And in the book of First Corinthians, Saint Paul warns specifically against the sin of fornication. He warns the baptized against the sin of fornication and says that if you go to a prostitute 
you will be uniting the body of Christ to a prostitute. In other words, in spite of the fact of their mortal sin, they do not cease to be members of Christ's body, the church, which status they obtained through baptism. As many as are baptized have clothed themselves with Christ. But once we take on the obligations of Christian life by becoming Christians through baptism, if we do not keep in step with the Spirit, if we fail to cooperate with grace, then though we are Christians, we will go to hell. There are Christians in hell. So you're, the, the difference is not, are they Christians or not? The, Christ, the question is, are they good Christians? Are they a Christians who are cooperating with grace and on the path to eternal life? Or are they Christians who are at risk of shipwrecking their faith and going to hell? St. Peter, in Second Peter chapter 2, says, better never to have entered the way of righteousness than to start out on the path and then turn back. So you can do it. You can start out on the way to righteousness and then turn back. And uh, the apostles say, uh, don't do that. Now, second question. Second question, Larry? So in name only, then? No, 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 excuse me. No, not in name only. No. When you're baptized, you enter into a supernatural state, regardless of the quality of your moral life. And that supernatural state is that you are now made a member of Christ's body, the Church, and you are made a priest in the Catholic Church in virtue of your baptism. That's not in name only. Those are genuine, real, supernatural changes that are conferred upon you. A character imprinted on your soul, not just, not just a term, but a genuine change supernaturally in your status, in your being, as a member of Christ's body of the church. That's not in name only. But a person who is in that status also incurs moral obligations which, if they fail in the performance of, will in fact go to hell. So baptized Christians made members of Christ's body of the church with a permanent character imprinted to their soul will be recognizably Christian in hell. And people will say, hey, there's a guy that's got the baptismal character imprinted on his soul, but he didn't keep the faith and, and fight the fight, and therefore he's suffering for it. This is not in name only, but it's not sufficient to get you to heaven either. Go ahead, second question. Okay, we'll have to agree to disagree. Uh, my second question is, why doesn't the uh, people higher up in the Catholic Church, like the Pope and like that, condemn like uh, the scapular? Because yeah, thanks. The Appreciate the question. So scapular is an article of clothing worn by Catholic religious to distinguish them and their, and their state of life, right? And to, to wear a scapular... Uh, is to indicate that you are consecrated in your form of life to a certain kind of spirituality. There are lay people who who like to be associated with religious orders, their charism and spirituality, without taking on the full mantle of that religious life, right? Third orders and so forth, who will who will seek to be associated with that community and that charism and that spirituality and the graces and merits acquired by the members, and they do so. It, by the devotional action of, say, wearing a scapular, which is a, a smaller version of the mm -hmm. religious artifact. Um, to do so uh, can be a, a pious and holy thing and an incitement to holiness. And the Church says this is perfectly lawful and a legitimate form of private devotion. Now, like anything in Catholic life, a good thing can be taken to a bad use. You can approach any devotion, any prayer, or any sacrament in a superstitious way. And so what does the church do? 
she condemns the misuse of such devotional practices Mm -hmm. and commends their proper use. There you go. Larry, thanks for your call. Keep listening to WSFI. It's a great station there in your area. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Eric in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. His question is, does Colossians 2.18 not prove that praying and giving devotion to angels is unacceptable? Um, yeah, I'm going to read the text to you in okay. so just a second. All right. Um, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Nope. It just disqualifies people who delight in false humility and the worship of angels. Okay. There you go. Don't do that. Don't do that. Appreciate uh, your checking in with us, Eric, in Amsterdam. Here now is Lucy in Omaha listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Lucy, what's on your mind today? Well, first of all, thank you, gentlemen, for all you do for the Catholic faith. Thank you. Uh, My question has to do with Rome. Uh, The apostles and disciples were based in the Middle East, and I was just curious how and when... What were the circumstances that led the apostles to have Rome become the center or base of the church? Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Something that modern Christians, Catholic or not, I think fail to adequately appreciate is the extent to which the promise of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, the great good of the gospel, is the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. But this is foremost in the minds of the apostles. When you read especially the writings of St. Paul, in particular the book of Ephesians, what is the mystery that had been hidden from the ages but now revealed in Christ? Paul says it's that the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel and inheritors of the promise to Abraham. Now, how, how many of us were raised... To be told, what's the gospel? What's the great good? What? And we're usually told something like, well, you know, your sins are forgiven and you can go to heaven, which is true. That's not actually how Paul articulates it. The great good is that you Gentiles are now incorporated within the commonwealth of Israel. You are now heirs, along with Israel, of the promise to Abraham. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentile is that great promise hidden in the Old Testament, now revealed in Christ. And so bringing that to fruition, the the full inclusion of the Gentiles to within the, the household of the family of God is Paul's apostolic mission. In, in Romans chapter 15, he actually says this beautiful passage towards the end of the book of Romans that his whole priestly calling as a priest of Jesus Christ is to make the offering of the Gentiles acceptable to God. I mean, do we ever think about this as the is Paul's mission? Like he's offering a sacrifice to God of a bunch of Gentiles. Hey God, I'm giving you Gentiles. That's my gift to you. I'm bringing them into the household of faith. And and Rome was from the point of view of the apostles and actually the whole world at that time, the center of the Gentile world. And that's why in Romans chapter 1, Paul uh, writes to uh, the church there and says, I've been longing to come to you. Like, I can't wait to get to Rome. He had a chance of getting off the hook, right, when he was in front of King Agrippa mm-hmm. uh, in um, 
in, uh, was it um, Caesarea Philippi? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, and he says, uh, no, no, I, I'm, I appeal to the emperor. I want to go to Rome. And uh, Festus and Agrippa, he, this guy could have gotten off if he hadn't appealed to the emperor. But instead, he got free passage to Rome, right? He got what he was looking for. And he mar- was martyred there, too. Yeah. But they wanted to preach the gospel in Rome and to convert Rome. And, and Peter, of course, ultimately died at Rome, uh, essentially, to, to, to bring the entire Gentile world within the orbit of the Christian faith. And it's a symbol of, of that world. And so this is why the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, uh, elects Rome to be the center of the Catholic Church and the, and, the, uh, and the first see, right, the Holy See, because this is a symbol of the entire Gentile world now incorporated into Christ. Okay. Lucy, thank you so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. I want to tell you uh, just a, a few things here about Church Pop. You ever checked it out? It features new online Christian content that is fun, informative, and inspirational. Just a moment ago, I went to the Church Pop website. Uh, here's an article that says, The true origins of Halloween are actually deeply Catholic. Sounds like an interesting article. Here's one from uh, actress Patricia Heaton, who they interviewed. She says, the purpose in life is glorifying God, not yourself. That's pretty powerful coming from a an actress in Hollywood, I would say. Do check out Church Pop. It is very cool. You'll find it on Snapchat, Instagram, and on the web at churchpop.com, churchpop.com. Back to the phones right now here on Call to Communion on EWTN. Denise, listening in Wyoming, Wyoming, Michigan, on Holy Family Radio. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Hi. Hey, Doctor, thanks for taking my call. And I am a Protestant, and I love EWTN. Great. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time. Um, got a question for you, though. Um, and I've heard you talk about this often and a few times. I, just just to clear it up, the Catholic Church, does do they hold that being saved, being really being a Christian, being saved, is a work of, well, is it works or is it grace? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, first of all, being saved and being a Christian are two different things. Not all Christians are saved. We actually had a call earlier in the show about that, right? We become members of Christ's body through faith and baptism. Paul says, as many who, as who have been baptized have clothed themselves with Christ, right? Um, but in order to be saved, Jesus himself tells us, Matthew 24, we have to persevere till the end. He says, whoever perseveres to the end will be saved. Not all Christians persevere to the end. That's manifest. So you can be a Christian and not be saved. Um, now, it uh, kind of depends on what you mean by works. Depends on what you mean by works. Um, when Scripture says that we're justified by faith and not works of the law, I mean, that's the biblical teaching. St. Paul has in view the Mosaic Covenant. We are not accounted members of Christ in virtue of keeping the precepts of the Mosaic Law. It's not what constitutes us Christian. Makes us and does, doesn't work that way. And and even if you restrict it just to the moral precepts of the law, having the Mosaic Law, even just in the Ten Commandments, and adhering to follow them, or, or attempting to follow them, to adhere to them, will not actually make you righteous with God because you will fail in the attempt. Right? Um, and and Paul deals with this at great length. He says, look, you know, the commandment. Just you throw out there an imperative: don't commit adultery, don't lust after your neighbor's wife. Well, rather than actually producing righteousness in the heart, 
uh, that's liable to incite you to the sin. Anybody who's ever had a four-year-old knows that, mm. right? So what's the solution for Paul? God has to establish that holiness in us himself. This is a supernatural work of grace in the human heart. He says in Romans 5, 5, that God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In response to what? In response to faith. It's not because I do such a good job keeping the law that God then responds by giving me grace. No, God initiates the work within me entirely of his gracious his gracious initiative, his gracious benevolence, in spite of myself, in spite of my merits or demerits. Now, but what does that grace accomplish within me? And this is the key difference between Catholics and Protestants. The Protestant believes that the grace of God forgives my sins and makes me accounted righteous before God for Christ's sake. So though I remain objectively sinful... God regards me as if I were righteous. That's the Protestant position. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the Catholic Church says. The Bible says that through faith, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts, poured into our hearts, and that our hearts are circumcised, changed. And the law, rather than being written as a precept on tablets of stone is now written into our very hearts and minds. That's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. And in Romans 2, 25 to 29, Paul says someone who has this condition, someone whose heart has been reworked by God's initiative, now keeps the righteous requirements of the law, the dikaumata tu namu, right? What is that? That's loving God and loving neighbor. And it's on the basis of that reworked supernatural charity infused into us by God's initiative that Jesus can then say to us on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. So our moral condition by God, before God, our moral condition before God is the basis of God's judgment. We will be judged on our works. That's the explicit teaching of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 says we'll be judged by our works. Jesus in Matthew 25, says we will be judged by our works. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, says we will be judged by our works. But they are works done in grace. They are works that God himself works within us. So the difference, but to the Protestant point of view, the Protestant thinks that we will be judged only on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But the Bible doesn't say that. There's not a single passage of the Bible saying, on the last judgment, Jesus will say, well done, because I did well and imputed it to you. No, he says, well done, because you fed the hungry, clothed the naked, gave drink to the thirsty, and so forth. And that's why Revelation 20 says that the dead will be judged by the deeds they have done, whether good or bad. That's the basis of the judgment. But how do we do good deeds? We do them in grace, which has been poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit in response to faith. And I'll even say at this point, faith alone, if you will, because it's faith is what bring, God's gift of faith brings within my life that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that then works within me the charity mm. that enables me to love God and love neighbor and therefore be saved. Wow. 
Denise, thank you so much for your call. We appreciate hearing from you. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We go to Nancy in Portland listening on Modern Day Radio. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders and everybody. Dr. Anders, I'm hey, a huge fan. Thank you, you are a rock star in my no, world. No, <laughs> but I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. What can I do for you? I used to want to be a rock okay, star I'm re- when I was a kid. <laughs> It didn't work out for me very well. I'd like to be a backup singer if you ever go down that road again. Oh, there you go. I think I've aged out of (laughs) of the rock star thing. (laughs) What's on your mind? (laughs) Well, actually, I only sing in the shower these days, so it it works out. Um, I'm reading your book right now, and I was tickled and delighted to read that what you wrote about the Jewish author named Haim Potok. And I accidentally discovered him years ago, and I love his books. I was curious to know if you ever read his little book called The Promise, and if you could recommend any other um, Jewish kind of books to read to help evangelize to my Jewish friends. And I'm going to take your answer off the air, and I love all you guys. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I read a good bit of Haim Potok back in the day. Um, I read The Chosen, which, of course, is probably his most famous work. Um, I read My Name is Asher Lev, uh, which I loved. Um, I read The Gift of Asher Lev, which I did not love. Um, uh, I thought it was one of not, not his best work. I read uh, Davida's Harp, which I enjoyed. I don't know, I don't remember reading The Promise. What I liked about Asher Lev, uh, excuse me, what I liked about Haim Potok was that of course, you know he was a Hasidic Jew, Orthodox Jew, who who became reform in his in his practice, and all of his books are about the tension between tradition and modernity within the Jewish community, and and uh, they're they're ambiguous in their judgment, right? And that's one of the things I love about them. It's kind of a a studied ambiguity because he recognizes that there were goods to be realized in in each tradition. The, you know, the modern and the ancient, mm-hmm. and they're irreconcilable. Like you really can't have them both, right? And to, the attempt to do so is to is to hold two things in tension that is intrinsically painful. And it's why his I think his most powerful work is My Name Is Asher Lev because Lev the Asher Lev the character is a Hasidic Jew who is a gifted artist and visual art was not part of the tradition that he grew up in. And so he tries to live the life of a faithful Orthodox Jew while also learning all the conventions of modern art, which stand in radical contrast to the tradition. And he settled upon the image, the artistic image of the crucifix, as a symbol for his own experience of alienation. And, of course, that alienates him even further from his, <laughs> from his family, who read that as a kind of, uh, a kind of apostasy even and a, and a blasphemy to depict Christ in that way because they were Jewish and they weren't Christian. But he said, this is, a, this is a powerful cultural artistic image. And in my own life, um, I, I, you know, becoming Catholic for me was a devastatingly difficult thing to do. And, and it, it was, from the view of my family, kind of like joining the enemy. Right? We'd lived our whole lives against, consciously against the Catholic Church. And there were goods that I realized as a Protestant. Um, but the two traditions were in conflict in my heart in a way that was not reconcilable, fully, fully reconcilable. Mm-hmm. And so I related to the character of Asher Lev. And so it was sort of therapeutic for me in my own journey to read someone completely outside of Christianity, uh-huh. outside of Catholicism, who gave expression to what I was feeling and experiencing and recognizing that, you know, yes, 
even in the experience of loss and pain and alienation that I currently have, there is in that very experience a good to be realized. And and that of course is the message of the cross. Sure. Right? And so it was a it was a very helpful stage in my own spiritual development. In terms of recommending books to help you share the Catholic faith with Jews, really I think um, the the works of the Anglican biblical scholar N.T. Wright are very useful because I think you need to you need to come to understand the New Testament the way first century Jewish Christians understood the New Testament. And this is different from the way many Christians have read the New Testament down through the centuries. Uh, Christer Stendhal, who's a Lutheran biblical scholar at Harvard, wrote a book called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles, which again, it's a, it's a work of, of Pauline interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of those guys are Catholic, but they were outstanding biblical scholars. Um, E.P. Sanders' work, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, uh, is another one. It's a classic treatment of the same topic. Um, and uh, and then, you know, good apologetics that, that deal with uh, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Christ are always useful. Um, someone who's very helpful here is, uh, is uh, Larry Feingold, Professor Lawrence Feingold at Kenrick Theological Seminary. He's a Jewish convert to the Catholic faith. And many of his lectures and books are accessible through the Association of Hebrew Catholics, Website and their catechetical materials on Judaism and Christianity are, are outstanding. So uh, that might be where I would start with Dr. Feingold and the Association of Hebrew Catholics. Some great resources there. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for your call. Chris in Madison, Ohio, listening on the Station of the Cross. Chris, we have about a minute left. What's your question, please? Good afternoon. Thank you. First-time caller, long-time listener. Thanks for your wisdom and your knowledge, Doctor. Thank you. I have a brother who I have a brother who's in his late sixties. I have a friend who is seventy years old. They are both baptized Catholic, with the exception of weddings and funerals. Uh, they haven't been in a Catholic church since they were baptized. I'd like to know how to approach them to make them understand what a serious situation it is. Okay. But every time I try, I, well, I I I I I, I sympathize with your. Your deep solicitude and concern. My my sense is opening up with you're in a very grave spiritual spiritual condition and you're at risk of hell. While true, may not be the best opening to get a hearing. Um, I think you know a more sort of generous putting the the goodness of the faith in front of them approach, without the the doom and gloom and fire and brimstone. At least in our present cultural situation, is probably a better way of going. And, uh, and if you can find a way to have a non-threatening, and that's really the key, right, a non-threatening conversation with them about the Catholic faith, that's the way I would go. And it might begin by simply uh, asking them questions about themselves and their spiritual journey with genuine interest and not, not simply as a means to an end to make them feel manipulated. Chris, thank you so much for your call. A fast-moving hour, Dr. David Andrews. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tom. We do the program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore on uh, the same day at 11 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of uh, Charles, Ryan, and Jeff, I'm Tom Price, uh, along with Dr. David Anders, welcoming you to Call to Communion. See you again tomorrow at the same time. God bless. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Pack. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio. 
Want the latest pro-life news? Want it delivered? Sign up. It's free. EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, your source for everything happening now in the fight to protect the sanctity of human life. New episodes delivered every week to your inbox. So if you really want to know, sign up today. Go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. St. Jerome Catholic Church will be having their Turkey Festival Sunday, November 3rd. Turkey and dressing plates with all the fixings plus tea and dessert will be $10 per plate. Dine-in and to-go begins at 10.30 a.m. There will be a bingo that begins at 12.30 p.m. plus an arts and crafts show. For more information, visit them online at stjeromesatx.org or call 210-648-2694. Mother Teresa said, let no one come to you without leaving better or happier. This is how we try to live our personal and professional lives. We're Rob and Camille DeMaio, proud sponsors of Guadalupe Radio here in San Antonio. Our team of realtors can help you through every step of buying or selling a home. For more information, call us at 210-488-1144 for real estate help in San Antonio and throughout the United States. Rob and Camille DeMaio, your real estate team. 210-488-1144. This is Father Jonathan Felux, Vocation Director of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. The Second Vatican Council states that the faithful are by baptism made one body with Christ and constituted among the people of God. They in their own way are made sharers in his priestly, prophetical, and kingly functions in Jesus Christ. We have all been baptized priests so we can worship the Lord and sacrifice of ourselves for his glory. We've been baptized prophets so that we can speak his word to the world, which is so often in darkness. We've been baptized into Christ's kingship so we can help his work in ordering the world to his will and announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. This mission we have received should be the foundation of our lives every day. Remember who you are, my brothers and sisters, and live your identity in your daily lives. This is how the body of Christ moves in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. For more on how to live your vocation in the world, visit us at archsa.org slash vocations. That's archsa.org slash vocations. This is Father Jonathan, and may God bless you. This is Life News Radio. I'm Jim Anderson. On Sunday, Pastor Robert Morey of St. Anthony Catholic Parish in Florence, South Carolina, denied Joe Biden communion. In Father Morey's previous career, before becoming a priest, he was a criminal defense attorney. Responding to local press outlets, the pastor almost downplayed the situation, just like you might expect from someone accustomed to dealing with those standing outside some rule of law. In this case, church law. Joe Biden's position on abortion has leading abortion advocates saying they trust Biden to protect abortion on demand. The National Right to Life Committee is on record as saying the real reason Capitol Hill Democrats are going after President Trump is because he is pro-life. Countering Planned Parenthood's activity, NRLC is the largest single-issue pro-life group and is simply offering their full explanation, available at lifenews.com. This is Life News Radio. News at Life News Radio should make you think, and often it should make you think about calling your elected officials in Washington, D.C. Let your senators, your representatives, hear from you. 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. 
In other headlines, pediatricians in Holland say they want to be able to euthanize or arrange early death for children. Another story from Florida offers more evidence how abortion is used by sex slave kidnappers to keep minors in that business. And Kanye West is drawing conclusions that may tell of a pro-life conversion while slamming racial targeting in abortion. For pro-life headlines delivered to your email address daily, sign up at lifenews.com. This has been Life News Radio. Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floorsville, San Antonio. On the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. Heard also streaming on grnonline.com and on your smartphone.